Welcome, it's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking down news of the day, my contributor, none other than Jeff Wiggins, Rebel HQ contributor and host of We Gonna Be All Right. An amazing gentleman. Will be a fascinating breakdown. First story of the day, Cop City, still major protest, still state of Atlanta moving forward with doubling down on the development. Uh, let's do this, right? Let's put up one of the signs, the iconic signs from this movement. It says, Stop Cop City, a moral call for people of faith. That was posted by the United Church of Christ, okay? Just a few weeks ago, we had an activist, pastor, and community leader on the program. She actually went viral for calling out city council on their, well, let's say, lack of care for what the community is saying. Here it is. Honestly, they could rip up this contract because they're already in violation of a lawsuit. <laughs> There's been a lawsuit filed for this illegal land swap. There was also a stop work order put in place and Dave Wilkinson was able to say we're gonna go ahead anyways and violate that stop work order. So honestly, for the city of Atlanta to void this contract would be no more egregious than what's already been done. And I want people to be very clear, people of Atlanta in particular, when you are looking at your council members, I'm talking about Jason Dozier. I'm talking about Antonio Lewis. I'm talking about Jason Winston. I'm talking about Mary Norwood. I'm talking about Andrea Boone. We're talking about Liliana Bakhtiari, who is the council member that represents that district. We're talking about Dustin Hillis and Matt Westmoreland, all of them on down the line. What I want you to understand, people of Atlanta, is that it is a lie that it's too late to rescind that lease. That is not the truth. Reverend Kiana Jones, well respected community leader and activist, laid out protocol violations, but also said during that same interview that the reason there's this disconnect between the development and the community is because the city did not do a good job communicating things with input from the local area. That is a big deal. While we contextualize this entire argument of Cop City and this massive development in the arena of citywide good, please keep in mind the city, the entire city of Atlanta will not have to deal with Cop City, only a local community. That local community is East Atlanta. East Atlanta is saying they do not want the development as is. There may be opportunity for discussion here. There may be opportunity for negotiation. But when the other side seems as if they're not willing to even budge, then naturally individuals will go public and that's what they're doing, rightfully so. Let me give you some other dynamics connected to this. Put up the picture of one of the faces now that will be connected to this saga forever. See, he's dead. And he's dead around very mysterious circumstances still. So the Atlanta City Council, and keep his picture up. The Atlanta City Council, they voted this week to move forward with allocating millions of dollars to a private nonprofit that plans to actually build the controversial police and firefighting 
facility, okay? It's the same area where protester Manuel Turan was shot, killed by trooper Steele, unclear as to what actually happened. Conflicting reports, no gun residue on his hand, even though they say he shot first. Council member Dustin Hills introduced the ordinance on Monday of this week after more than seven hours of public comment opposing the project. So when this came up for discussion, over 300 people signed, right at 300 people signed the petition and said, we wanna discuss. The vast majority were what? They were against Cop City. You have to understand, Atlanta is a different place. We are a cradle for civil rights. But that cradle, that civil rights dynamic is truly the moral compass of this country. What do you think America would be if it had not been for the Dr. Kings of the world? What do you think America would be right now if it had not been for the righteous movements that were contrary to the overwhelming sentiment of America, but those movements created better character for the nation? There's more, if approved, if approved, it would authorize the transfer of 30 million from the fiscal year 2023 budget to the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center and 1 million for a gym at the site. It would also allow the city to lease the 85 acre facility to the Atlanta Police Foundation for $10 a year for 50 years. Meanwhile, the remaining acreage for the project is to be kept as a green space. The project is going to cost about $90 million with the rest of the funding coming from the Atlanta Police Foundation. The nonprofit is raising money through private philanthropy including corporate contributions from Bank of America, Chick-fil-A, Coca-Cola, Gas South, Georgia Pacific, and Norfolk Southern and UPS. Before the ordinance was introduced, dozens of protesters also rallied against the project outside of City Hall. They say the legislation goes against what council members have been saying, which is that there's little they can do to stop it. If approved, it would authorize the transfer of 30 million from this budget and it would continue. Now, I want everyone to really consider why this is so important. I'm in Atlanta. I moderated the mayoral debates in Atlanta on CBS Atlanta News live. Nobody campaigned on this. No one campaigned on Cop City. As a matter of fact, it was such it was such a non-factor in the overall scheme of the election. Many people did not even post the question. Why? Because it wasn't something that was big and popular in the arena of elected or electoral politics. But all of a sudden it became the thing. I would say this before transparency. I like Mayor Dickens. I think he's a fine leader. I think he's a remarkable person. And I'm thankful that the mayor appointed me part of this task force to oversee the development and implementation of this cop city. The first meeting I refused to go to because the meeting was not open to the public and I would not participate in such shenanigans. The second meeting was open to the public and all meetings beyond that should be open to the public as far as what I'm told. But I will say this clearly, my position has been steady from day one. 
whatever the community wants in that local area will be the advocacy I give to the city. There's absolutely no changing that. If you do not do what is necessary to make Mamadam in East Atlanta say yes to you, you will always get a no from me. All right, Jeff, thoughts here. Yeah, they want the local community in East Atlanta along with private philanthropy and many corporations to pay for law enforcement in order to make them better at beating down the local community in East Atlanta. So East Atlanta is gonna pay for their own oppression and brutalization. Pretty cruel, if I have to say so myself. I don't know how it's gotten this far. I didn't know that background information about the mayoral race there. And I'm glad you moderated it in order to provide that background information. This is awful. Like this is bad. There's nothing else I can say. And the fact that, you know, there's a claim that there's little that the community can do to stop it is harrowing news. Like this is horrible. They clearly don't want it. They shouldn't pay for it. All this money can go to fund stuff that would decrease crime, like yep. housing. Uh, job placement, food insecurity, all that money could be used for something better than this and the community won't get there. Yeah, very sad saga. This could be career defining for the political figures involved. And some of them decent, good, solid up until now. There's a question, doesn't have to be. You do not have to do what people with a whole lot of money are telling you to do, it is not mandated. All right, we'll bring you developments and updates as they come. Okay, a congressman violent against the protester. Here it is. Representative Gosar, can you talk about when you did that that rally with the with the neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes? Uh, can you talk about when your family did an ad all all endorsing your opponent? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Hey, please don't touch me. Please don't touch me. Please don't touch me. Make your deal. I'm a congressman. I make your deal. Can you tell this guy? Can you tell this guy? Then I'll come talk to you privately. Can you tell this guy? Can you? But you can't ask you can't answer the questions that he has. No. Answer the question. Okay. Listen, I respect your, your first. I'm Clay Higgins. I represent South Louisiana. Clay Higgins. All I'm asking okay. you to do is just peacefully stand by with your camera. Uh -huh. And I promise you, look at me. I'll come talk to you straight up. I'll answer all your questions. Fair enough. Do you know about his family and his, you know, his endorsement? Your, yeah, I'll, I'll answer that when we talk. Okay. No, you're out. You're out. You're out. You're out. Congressman Lucky, you didn't catch them hands. As you can clearly see, well outside of what we would consider to be lawful. All right, that was assault. That was unwanted physical contact is what you saw. Now, let me give you the background, all right? So let's put it up full mass. The congressman who decided to engage in a criminal assault, in my opinion. Louisiana GOP representative 
So the incident occurred during a news briefing on Wednesday with the Louisiana Republican Representative Clay Higgins and a fellow GOP representative, Paul Neo-Nazi Gosar, and also Lauren Boebert. They're all the same basically, all right? Where Higgins pushed an activist, the activist you saw, his name is Jake Burdett. Higgins in a statement to Newsweek said Mr. Burdett was threatening. So he had to escort him out and he was turned over to the Capitol Police, all right? So the activist and noted progressive journalist talked about that. He said, and I quote, despite Representative Higgins being the one putting his hands on me, dragging me without my consent, the cops all sprung down on me. Burdett said to Newsweek via text, they let Representative Higgins walk away without having a word with the guy. But then told me to go walk across the street to the sidewalk opposite us so that they could question me about what happened. In a follow up text, Burdett told Newsweek that he is consulting with legal counsel and will file charges if there are solid grounds to do so. Um, yeah, of course there are. There, yeah, you believe you were physically assaulted? Did you uh, experience a physical assault? Do you have evidence of the physical assault? You can go to DC police and take out a warrant for that. Yes, you can, okay, you can do so. I encourage you to, if you have been assaulted, let's put up the picture full mask, right? This is not the first time a Republican politician has attacked someone. Remember when Montana Governor Greg Gainfort body slammed the reporter Ben Jacobs, okay? That was a thing, oh, okay, well maybe Republicans they have something they need to deal with the side of the party. Uh, there's more, here's audio of the incident. To the CBO score, because you know you were waiting to make your decision about healthcare until you saw the bill and it just came out. And what yeah, you and thought we'll about talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not gonna be time. I'm just curious if you okay, have Speak with right Shane, now. please. But you don't know. Sick and tired of you guys. The last Jesus guy that came Christ. here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Jesus. Get the hell out of here. The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. You'd like me to get the hell out of here, I'd also like to call the police. Can I get you guys' names? Hey, you gotta leave. He just body slammed me. You gotta leave. Or how about this one? Let's put it with the picture full mask. So we may not remember all of these things in a tapestry. So it's important to put together the links that exist. How about when Tennessee House Republican assaulted his Democratic colleague, Justin Jones, on the House floor? Here's the video. Representative Justin Lafferty pushed me and stole my phone and tried to incite a riot with his fellow members in this section of the, of the House floor. I have it on video, I will send it to you. <laughs> Representative Jones, that is not a parliamentary question, that is an accusation. 
You can have that question at a later date, but this is unfinished business. Battery is a felony offense in Tennessee that involves any physical contact with another individual that is against their will or not consented to. Having witnessed a battery on this House floor, I think we need to respond in kind to anyone who has committed this felonious conduct. We don't have battery in this state, sir, with all due respect. We have assault, and for it to be a felony, it would have to be with a deadly weapon or cause serious bodily injury. But any other type of assault would be a misdemeanor, also which we would not approve of. Hey, what he did wasn't a felony, likely a misdemeanor, which, by the way, is bad, too. We don't approve of that, but just want to let you know. Um, violence, is it not the height of hypocrisy? For the party who is actually violent, pro-death, pro-conflict, they are the ones who proclaim to be pro-life. They are the individuals telling you they have a moral connection to God. That their righteousness through policies that would in fact make a child subject to abuse, by forcing them to bear a fetus at the age of 11, that their policies are somehow from on high. They are the ones that will tell you that violence is out of control in America. They will talk about how DC needs to address it, DC the city, when they can't address violence in their own party. They are the ones who stormed the Capitol, who wanted to overturn the government. Same individuals here. You see, their only superpower, their strength, is in their ability to message, message even beyond the truth. Message, lies, narrative that somehow gets consumed by their base. Jeff, thoughts here. So Clay Higgins is and should be the story. His unwanted touching, which from a conservative politician, pretty standard, (laughs) you take that how they want. But that needs to be addressed. But I'm gonna need somebody to answer Burdett's question. Representative Gozar, can you talk about when <laughs> you did that rally with the neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes? Like, let's not skim over that. We're gonna need to talk about that. And who else was in there? Was it Bobert or MTG? Who Lauren else? Bobert. Lauren Bobert. Okay. Yeah, it, it, Marjorie Taylor Greene was, she's not part of that crew anymore. They kind of split up, but they're both doing oh. that white supremacist thing in separate regions. Yeah. Separate white yeah. supremacist. Okay. That's well, Two different avenues can lead to the same destination. Either way, yeah, I'm gonna need somebody to answer Burdett's question, Rep. Gosar, because why are you meeting with white nationalists, man? What's up with that? Let me say this about Gosar. Literally yesterday, we did a report of Congressman Gosar. He has a staff member who's a neo-Nazi, proud neo-Nazi, hmm. post really? everywhere about his love for Nick Fuentes. And I saw some of the remarks on social media saying, "Oh my goodness." Congressman, this is going to hurt you. This is, why would you do something like this? Why would you allow these people to define you? He's not, uh, he's not allowing them to define him. He is them. He's not hiring a guy who happened to be a white supremacist. He's hiring a white supremacist who happened to be a guy. That's all he did. All right, we got more on the other side. It's indisputable, stick and stay. All right, welcome back. We have a lot of show left. Uh, let me remind everyone of Progress Report. All right. We'd love for you to sign up. Make sure you have all of the information you need. Big stories. All right. Big stories that corporate media typically will botch. Well, we don't. All right. 
And I want you to know what's really going on. So here's what you got, what you got, what you got to do, excuse me. Scan the QR code, QR code or go to tyt.com forward slash newsletter to sign up, be informed. Okay, a lot of comments. Electic miscellanea. They murdered a protester before Cop City was even built. I can't even imagine how horrible things are. Mm. How horrible things are going to get for the community if Cop City is actually built. That's right. Um, and the anti-development movement is getting stronger by the minute to where now figures in mainstream Atlanta are saying, just not worth it. All right. Brett Campbell, aka dragging my ass. Uh, seemed like the uh, bowls has broken the cradle, did fall. Right. Okay, um, G Martinez Mac, I'm confused. How was it they even had the money to move forward with this type of development when there have been so many deaths related to police and political violence that need resolution and restitution? That's the argument of a major, major faction of this movement. Uh, Tyler Hackner, thank you so much, gifted one indisputable, thank you for that. Membership gifting, Vicki Gray gifted one indisputable, thank you Vicki. And look at that, Soul Life gifted 20, 20 indisputable memberships. We appreciate all of you. And for those who are new, welcome, all right? Uh, Fidel Castro Oil, can't solve the crime if the scene is bulldozed. It's a good point. All right, here we go, a racist motorist decides to stab a 62 year old individual. Let's put up his mug shot full mass. Horrific story, Alexander, Alexander Gosevich, a Michigan man has now been arrested and charged after police say he engaged in road rage and stabbed a black male with 62 years of age. Police say the suspect not only pulled a knife out, but also decided to slash the man's tires and called him racial slurs. Farmington Hills, all right, Alexander Gosevich has been charged with ethnic intimidation, felonious assault, malicious destruction of property for the recent violent roadway exchange, according to the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office. The charges, which were announced on Tuesday, May 16th, had a penalty for up to seven years and little under 10,000 in fines. Police in the Detroit suburb of Southfield were called after Gosevich and the 62 year old got into a squabble about driving on a highway. This was Sunday, May 14th. The suspect altered his course, followed the victim, the complaint says. As the conflict escalated, it is alleged Gosevich hurled racial slurs at the man and the two started to come to blows. Local station Fox 2 reports, Gosevich then returned to his car to retrieve a weapon. And with a knife in hand, the 25 year old stabbed his victim before slashing his tires according to the police. It was reported that during the incident, the victim, during the incident, the victim, a concealed pistol license holder raised his firearm but did not shoot. An eyewitness to the altercation also pulled a gun out but did not fire. The victim was not seriously injured. We've seen a concerning increase in the number of racial and ethnic intimidation cases lately. And I want our community members to know that behavior will not be tolerated in Oakland County, said the prosecutor Karen McDonald, okay? Um, now, this is interesting, isn't it? The victim has a gun, the aggressor has a knife, 
The victim would prefer the person with the knife to just leave. He doesn't want to actually kill somebody. He doesn't want to shoot him. He obviously doesn't even want to injure the guy, seriously. So instead of using the gun, he decides to simply let him know he has one to deescalate the situation. Doesn't work. The guy with the knife continues to be aggressive, according to the report, and stabs the 62 year old and then proceeds to make him immobile by slashing the tires. There's more. All residents, excuse me, all residents deserve to feel safe in their homes in public and on our roads, the prosecutor added. Maliciously attacking another driver while yelling racial slurs is unacceptable. And my office intends to hold this defendant and anyone else who commits hate crimes accountable. I really like the tone of this prosecutor. I like the tone of this prosecutor. And you've heard me say many times on this show before, what happened to that kind of press conference or press release? When we talk about how we can absolutely make an example out of people like this, it won't be tolerated in this community, similar to what they do when an alleged gangbanger commits a crime, right? There's a press conference and they were very heavy and aggressive language against them. Well, at least this prosecutor, I can say equal opportunity. According to the 2021 crime stats in Michigan, there were 610 incidents of hate bias crimes perpetrated against 769 people in Michigan. While race was the highest motivation to commit hate crimes, anti-black crimes led the list with 269 people listed as victims. They have to understand this in context, black people make up the minority of population, but they make up such a high percentage of crimes against that minority community. More than 22% of all hate crimes committed in 2021 happened on the highway, road, alley, street, or sidewalk. Oakland County is predominantly white, north of Detroit with a black population of 13.3% according to the last updated census. Um, We have this issue with our own humanity that's going to be there. But the worst among us becomes emboldened. They are empowered when they feel as if they have champions like Trump and others. And they feel they have protection like with the police. Sometimes that's actually true, sometimes it is not. That is really not the point. The point is they are empowered by the notion. The notion makes the incident happen. So at this point, we continue to allow people like Representative Gosar, obviously a known and proud white supremacist, Lauren Boebert and others who affiliate with them. They do not try to coerce this individual to denounce these insane practices. The Democratic Party holistically incapable of actually leading in the middle of this racist resurgence that's happening all across the nation. So who becomes the champion for decency and willing to fight rather than hoping everybody will sing Kumbaya? All right, welcome back. Good to be with you a lot on the agenda still. I'm gonna read a couple of these amazing comments and continue the program. I appreciate everyone in advance. Okay, real interesting. Richard Harden, uh, that's a hate crime. Uh, The victim has a gun. 
that's a peaceful black male. Yeah. Twitch, um, I think this is Scheisser. Uh, messed up thing is 62 year old white man with a gun, young black man, even unarmed, equals dead black man. Mm. <laughs> exactly. All right. Got something for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish a Karen would. You want to call the police on them for having a barbecue on a and Sunday? You're going to feel free. Back off. I'm going to tell them there's an African American man threatening my life. Entire band were made up of anti Karens. They were unbothered. So, according to the post, this particular Karen goes into a Mexican restaurant. There's a band. The band is playing great culturally appropriate music, an expression of their talent. And they were doing a fine job. Well, she did not like the music, she was upset. She said it was horrible, negative, bad. And so she decides to express this. I assume her point or strategy or goal was to stop them from playing. Don't really know. Typically, Karens do not really reverse engineer what they're trying to get accomplished, right? They just kind of start making things up as they go. But think about the Karenicity involved here, the privilege that we would not even consider to go to a Mexican restaurant and get mad because they're playing music that's culturally expressed. Um, That would actually excite me at a Mexican restaurant. Whoa, this is a treat, didn't know they did that. Here we go, live music. You want the food, but you don't want the culture. Uh, the reality of our of our dilemma in America is just that. They want everything else. Think about how urban style is mimicked and copied in white communities. Think about how urban vernacular is popularized in mainstream white circles. So everyone wants to be black, but nobody wants to be black. You know, all right. Uh, Jeff, thoughts here? Yeah, everybody wants to be black until it's time to be black. Well, that lady wanted Mexican food without Mexicans there or Mexican <laughs> right. music being played. Right. Shout out to them, by the way. They kept their time and they stayed on beat despite they somebody catching them. That is yeah. an absurd amount of talent from them. That's right. I agree completely. And I love the guy who acted like he was halfway interested in what she was saying. 
and then immediately went back to his instrument upon realizing she's a carrot. All right. Okay. Hell of a thing. Montana. Montana becomes the first state to ban TikTok. I knew this was coming, put him up. All right. The governor behind it, Governor Greg, Governor Greg Gianforte is the governor. We previously mentioned who slammed a reporter. He also signed a bill restricting downloads of TikTok on the TikTok app. It is now law. The legislation, which has passed, which was passed last month, has now become law. Makes it illegal for app stores to give users the option to download TikTok and illegal for the company to operate within the state. Um, so let's put it up. So this is his tweet. So the governor, Giaforte, says, well, to protect. Montana's personal and private data from the Chinese Communist Party. I have banned TikTok in Montana. Um, I know obviously there are questions now. So if, if I go to Montana, do I have to disable my TikTok app uh, there when I land or do I have to do it before because I'm technically committing a crime? And let's say I get caught with TikTok on my phone. I mean, can the police really put me in jail? How do I explain that to the guy next to me? that I'm in here because of a TikTok app. All right, punishment of the ban, let's get to it. Violations of this TikTok ban include every time a user is offered the ability to download the app, each violation could carry a $10,000 penalty. Enforcement would be handled by the Montana Justice Department. TikTok, they got something to say. So TikTok spokesperson, Brooke, Oberwetter called the bill unlawful in a statement Wednesday, saying the app is a platform that empowers hundreds of thousands of people across the state. We want to reassure Montanans that they can continue using TikTok to express themselves, earn a living, and find community as we continue working to defend the rights of our users inside and outside of Montana. Oh, this is going to be a fight. Federal limits of TikTok app already apply. Let's get into it. Although Montana is the first state to ban downloads and usage of the app for everyone inside of its borders. Limited bans have been issued federally and state by state for government owned devices. That's permissible as well as networks. President Joe Biden signed a bill last year that prohibits the federal government's nearly 4 million employees to use TikTok on devices owned by its agency. So the TikTok CEO Xiao Zichu told Congress in March that 150 million people in the US are regular users of the app. Um, I've seen some interesting legislation be proposed. One uh, ironically said, hey, listen, if we can get some of that money, all right, now if we can get a little more money out of this whole deal, we can allow TikTok to you know, do what it needs to do. That was one actual proposal, okay? Uh, the devices that are owned by the government, they get to enforce and restrict certain operations, this is nothing new, this is pretty standard and is applied typically everywhere on some level. Uh, so TikTok banned in an entire state, what, what? I can definitely get the government device argument. This argument, I actually believe TikTok is right, unlawful, will likely be overturned as they continue to fight this in court, but you never know. We have some insane judges on benches today. 
All right, Jeff, thoughts here. Oh my gosh. So somebody in that in Montana is gonna be put behind bars. Someone's <laughs> gonna say, what are you in for? And they're gonna be like, I mean, I downloaded this app because it was this trendy dance that I needed a tutorial for. And I got up in here. That is hardly worth it. And they're claiming that like Asian billionaires are running rampant with our information and everything like that. Are we against only Asian billionaires? Because Rupert Murdoch does a lot with his billions in America, but we don't seem to we kind of seem to tolerate that easily. So I'm very much confused. Hopefully this is overturned because it TikTok clearly gives Gen Z the ability to uh, overpower things and mobilize a community of, uh, of individuals who want to see something better for the future. So let's put an end to this, please. Yeah, and the reality is all social media apps, all uh, communication apps, they have good and bad that come from it. Why? Because it is a platform and the platform can be utilized to do great things or to do not so great things. Um, the argument of it being dangerous, well, that argument can legitimately apply to every social media app known to the universe, but we do not have bans statewide for them. Okay, um, you see, this is why, this is why they oppose healthcare for all. This is why they oppose. Looking at reports where we see inequity and death primarily coming to black people. There's a new study that has revealed black Americans have suffered nearly 2 million more deaths, excess deaths, deaths that did not have to occur at that time than others over the past 20 years. I'm going to Go to the video, here it is. Health disparities among black Americans are considered a public health crisis. Now a new study finds over two decades, the black population experienced more than 1.6 million excess deaths and 80 million years of life lost compared to the white population. All the disadvantage that black people incur ends up being translated both at very young ages and in, in middle age and older age into enormous amounts of years lost and early deaths. And, and this is really, I, I think, something that's unacceptable. Dr. Harlan Krumholtz with Yale School of Medicine authored the research that finds heart disease and cancer contributed most to the excess deaths, as well as infant mortality. Race is a social construct. It really doesn't have a strong root in, in biology. People aren't born predetermined that their life expectancies are gonna be shorter, but, but by where they live, the exposures that they have, the way the medical care system treats them simply because of their race. During the course of the study, researchers saw some improvement in reducing the gap, but progress stalled with the economic downturn, then COVID-19 hit. And it led us back to a situation where we were no better than we were 20 years ago. These are preventable deaths, and it's just up to us to configure society in a way that's responsive to the needs of this community and can recognize our obligation. I agree. Now look at COVID. I want you to look at COVID for example. Black people experienced the reality of an inequity inside of healthcare. So what happened? What really went down? Well, because of the disconnects that have been there forever, 
certain individuals were unable to get the proper treatment or even testing required, right? You have inequity in healthcare. You have many who did not have access to a doctor. We're talking about individuals who are across the spectrum, black, white, brown, but not insured, not insured, but should have been, okay? Because this country should make sure everyone has healthcare insurance. You see, if we did truly have a universal system that was robust and active, efficient, you realize that a whole lot of white people too would have never caught cold and never died. Why? Because we all live together in this country, all of us. And so when you decide to other a particular demographic, a particular group, because you think, well, those individuals, you know, they're not of my status. When something like this happens, all of a sudden we're all equal, we're all even, right? And what becomes a tragedy in my community becomes a tragedy in yours. So this is cause and effect, an opportunity to address it. 80 million years, 80 million years is what the report said. That is your gap. Those 80 million years were taken away from black communities. Why? Because of bad policy. Bad policy kills people. The dots have been connected. Let me give you more insight and information. These are takeaways because so many black people die young with many years of life ahead of them. Their higher mortality rate from 1999 to 2020 resulted in a cumulative loss of more than 80 million years of life compared with the white population. That's what the study shows. A companion study estimates that racial and ethnic inequities cost the US at least the minimum 421 billion in 2018. That's based on medical expenses, lost productivity, and premature death. Here are the economic factors. High mortality rates among black people have less to do with genetics than with the country's long history of discrimination, which has undermined educational, housing, and job opportunities for generations of black people. Said Clyde Yancey, an author of the study and chief of cardiology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. There are also environmental factors. Let's go to it. Black neighborhoods, black communities that were redlined in the 1930s, designated to high risk for mortgages and other investments, remain poorer and sicker today, Yancey said. Formerly redlined zip codes also had higher rates of COVID infection and death. It's very clear that we have an uneven distribution of health. Yancey said, we're talking about the freedom to be healthy. As long as we continue to contextualize this as a problem for one person or one group, or one race, we will always think that everyone coming together is not required, but it is. It's going to take a coalition response. There's more. Uh, being more educated doesn't affect racial health. Disparities, black women, we've talked about this before. Black women with a college degree are more likely to die from pregnancy complications than white women without even a high school diploma. Although researchers can't fully explain this disparity, Branch said it's possible that stress, including stress from systemic racism, takes a greater toll on the health of black mothers than previously recognized. There was a study cited at Morehouse School of Medicine that highlighted medical doctors tend to not believe their black patients. Thus, the diagnosis 
and the treatment is not appropriate to the disease. There's more black people and mental health. Let's talk about that. Black people shoulder a great burden of grief, which can undermine the mental health and physical health of anyone, said Khalil Johnson. Chief pediatric, chief pediatric care at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, given the high morality, excuse me, high mortality rate throughout the lifespan. Black people are more likely than white people to be grieving the death of a close family member at any point of their lives. All of this creates a life of expectancy issue. In 2021, non-Hispanic white Americans had a life expectancy rate of 76 years, okay? Non-Hispanic black Americans could expect to live only 71 years. Much of that disparity is explained by the fact that non-Hispanic black newborns are two and a half times as likely to die before their first birthday as non-Hispanic whites. Non-Hispanic black mothers are more than three times as likely as non-Hispanic white mothers to die from a pregnancy related complication. The, the point of this study is to help people, especially those in professional healthcare industries and health allied industries, to help them understand that their bias, their bias permeates in the culture of their industry. And everyone has it. All of us have some level of bias. Unconscious bias is present, but not dealing with it or acting as if it does not exist. Well, that part is evil and that leads to death. All right, Jeff thoughts. Pew Research Center survey from 2023 says that white people are less likely to wear a mask, less worried about spreading COVID to others and are less supportive of safety measures after learning COVID disproportionately harms communities of color. People who respond to those surveys and are subject to these studies, they know what the numbers and data suggest, but will still openly deny what we currently know about bias, whether it's intentional or not, in front of black, brown, and native people in this country. We are a community, a really big one that should support one another, especially when it comes to healthcare, which is very much lacking in this country. But we obviously don't, and we're okay with certain people dying needlessly before their time. That is as simple as it gets and as true as it gets. We are okay with the deaths of certain people. All right, we got the video. Okay, we're gonna come to it on the other side of the break. It's a hell of a video. We got more indisputable, stick and stay. All right, welcome back, a lot of show left, okay? Let me read a few of these comments. V says, these Karens have lost their minds. That mariachi band was probably dealt with, has probably dealt with people like her before all the time, obviously, right? Also, Savage Bear, entire band was great and professional. They were dope. Mm-hmm. Yep, black intelligence, medical apartheid, exactly what it is. Exactly what it is. Um, airship, right? Medicine has yet to catch up for minorities. And biases in healthcare professionals will take a generation to flush, flush away, um, maybe longer, because you have laws that are now prohibiting the very necessary professional training that allows a person to realize, aha, that's what that is. 
right? Okay. All right. Um, don't know how to say it other than just to say it. Uh, a naked man goes all over Miami, attacks a whole lot of people. We have the video. Here it is. All right, so this is a lot, right? He is alive. Now he attacked a whole lot of people and this happened over the course of an extended period of time. Nobody killed him, no officer attempted to kill him. He was apprehended. Now I'm not making fun of his condition. Whatever he's going through, obviously he needs help. What I'm doing is providing you with a direct comparable, a contrast if you would. Mr. Neely was on a subway train experiencing a more mild version of what you just saw. As a matter of fact, he was not bothering anyone. According to the witnesses, Mr. Neely was and his feelings had a bad day, but definitely not bothering or aggressive to anybody else. He was no threat. Then you have this male, obviously a threat, obviously physically violent, obviously out of control. They try to subdue him, they try to reason with him, they try to help him, and they did. He gets apprehended. Let me give you the background to this story. So a video has captured an individual in a wild moment. He attacked Miami gym goers after attempting to use the exercise equipment and then continuing on the rampage throughout the city streets. The unidentified individual stormed into the UFC gym located in the Midtown area around 9 p.m. Tuesday. He was manhandled off the premises by staff where he launched further attacks on people out in the road. The footage even shows him harassing a wheelchair-bound man before he is clobbered over the head, over the back of the head, with a bag by another citizen. It seemed not to phase him. A member of the staff at the gym told DailyMail.com that he had no idea why the naked man launched the attack. The cops didn't know either, but he was definitely on something, said the man who asked not to be named. Um, let's put up the other pictures we have. Police said they were responding to a crisis intervention call, okay? Understand how the call came in. The call did not come in as a criminal assault. The call came in as a crisis intervention call, all right? Mm -hmm. The man was having a mental health episode, according to Dade. The account that originally posted the video said the attacker was trying to get into his car when the cops arrived. He gets tased, but doesn't even flinch. 
then officers go on a slow chase and they apprehend him according to the poster of the information. The footage shows the naked man during darting between traffic as a wire from the taser gun still appears to be attached to his back. Eventually, he is cuffed and pinned down by the police who took him for a mental health evaluation. Did you hear that? They took him in for a mental health evaluation. After the examination is carried out, charges may or may not be pressed against the individual. Wow, they actually know how to do it right. You have an individual, you see him, you realize, oh my goodness, this person is not a criminal, even though he is criminally assaulting people. This is not a criminal, this is poor guy, this is a guy who actually needs help. So we're going to chase him down, we're going to use non-lethal methods, we're going to apprehend him. And when we do this, fellas, we're not going to put him in jail. No, we're not going to do that, we're gonna help this man. We're gonna take him in for an evaluation. We're gonna let him stay in the hospital. And then after that, based on the assessment of medical professionals, we can choose to not charge him with any crime at all. It's easy, just apply that to everybody in that same situation. That's all we ask. Jeff thoughts. Yeah, so they actually know how to care for people in a time of need. Cops and civilians, by the way. And since this man remains nameless and is alive, we don't get to hear about his backstory, whether it's, you know, criminal problems with the law, being in jail or something like that. Not that any of this matters. It just happened to matter when it came to Jordan Neely. Even though mm. the man who killed him did not know these things prior, once he died and people were like a black poor man was killed, they started digging into his past. Right. So Hopefully this, this naked man who was in the gym assaulting people gets the care he needs. And hopefully other jurisdictions around the country, other cities, other states can take this and say, this might be how we need to do it moving forward. That's right, and they're not even releasing the name of the man to protect his identity because they believe it was a mental health crisis. Good, once again, should be applied to everyone in that circumstance. All right, a four-year-old, a four-year-old child finds an unsecured gun, shoots his sibling with this gun. There's a statement from uh, the major about this. We'll go to it. Earlier today, our, our deputies were dispatched to a weapons disturbance around the 17,000 block of Sunshine Street. Uh, the comments on the costly device that. Uh, 40-year-old had uh, uh, shot the, the sibling, which was a one-year-old. I am uh, grateful to report that the one-year-old was immediately transported to the hospital and uh, is expected to survive. Our deputies responded to the scene. Upon arrival, they're, they're gathering other they're, the witnesses. We also had our crime scene unit respond to the scene, as well as our crime crimes against children investigators. We're in the process right now, processing the scene. However, I want to do uh, take this time to. Uh, Remind the community to be responsible when it comes to weapons. Make sure that you're securing them, especially when there's children in the house. Yeah, go ahead and lock up uh, the parents. Yeah, because that four-year-old did not shoot the one-year-old. Uh, the parents did by leaving an unsecured gun in such a dangerous position for their child 
to grab and to shoot. Let's put up the picture of this precinct. It is, excuse me, of the house. A one-year-old child in Texas, of course it's Texas, underwent surgery after his four-year-old brother shot him unintentionally. The actual bullet went to the leg. Why? Because he found an unsecured gun in the home. This was in Houston. The children's father told KPRC2 News that he was not home at the time of the shooting, okay? But the children's mother was. He told the outlet that the four-year-old likes to play with toy guns and was likely unaware that he had found a real one, which belonged to a relative staying at the home. Likely unaware? A four-year-old understands the difference. I don't know any, okay? So you allowed him to practice with fake guns, got his hands on a real one and knew exactly what to do. Got it. A Harris County District Attorney's Office spokesperson told HuffPost that law enforcement is still conducting their investigation. And any case will go to a grand jury to determine whether charges are appropriate to file. According to data from the advocacy group, Every Time for Gun Safety, there has been at least 113 unintentional shootings by children in the US so far this year, resulting in 47 deaths, 68 injuries, some very severe. This incident comes only two months after a similar accidental shooting took place in Harris County, where a three-year-old killed her four-year-old sister after finding the parent's gun. Firearms are the leading cause of death among children in the United States, topping car accidents and cancer. A Pew Research Center analysis found that gun deaths increased by 50% among children and teens between 2019 and 2021. You know what else increased between 2019 and 2021? States that passed laws saying you have no reason to get a permit for that gun. You have absolutely no law that mandates it. They call it open carry and constitutional carry. When they passed these bills, when these policies became law, they had a direct impact on the culture of gun owners. Thus an impact on the death rate of children. Now, if they actually cared about children, do you believe they would be silent on this? They don't care about children, they care about the indoctrination process. They care about who they actually can get to give them power to support their agenda for more power. You're not dealing with people that have true ideology. You're dealing with people who have one ideology, power, that's it. Influencer scams 2 million from the elderly. Put up the picture for a mask. Social media influencer Monet Montrage, 30 years of age, flaunted a lavish lifestyle online, but was actually scamming elderly people. On Friday, she was extradited from the United States. Kingdom to the US for allegedly swindling over 2 million from older single American men and women in a twisted lonely heart scam. That's according to federal prosecutors. This influencer who had around 3.4 million IG followers on a page, 
okay? Haja for real at one point from at least 2013 to 2019 was involved with a group of con artists, a group, a system from West Africa who assumed fake identities to trick people into thinking they were in relationships with with them using emails, text and social media messages according to the feds. The scammers would then get the victims transfer money. Transfer money to them under false pretenses, pretenses such as to help move gold to the US from overseas, to resolve bogus FBI investigations and payments to help fake US Army officers in Afghanistan, court papers allege. The influence of Montrage, in one case, allegedly duped a victim into selling her $89,000, sending her, excuse me, $89,000, 82 wire transfers on the pretext of helping her father's farm in Ghana. The court documents claim this. She tricked the person into believing the pair were married by sending them a tribal marriage license or certificate after a series of phone conversations using her real identity. The filing alleges there's more. Montrage also received money from several others who were swindled by scammers in her network. In total, the influencer netted two million in funds the group ripped off from victims, the bank accounts she had in the Bronx and elsewhere, including one opened in the name of For Real Designs, a supposed clothing company. She then allegedly laundered the stolen money to other members of the enterprise, the indictment charges, and all, and all. The influencer is charged with wire fraud. Money laundering, receipt of stolen money and conspiracy. She faces up to 20 years in prison if convicted of the top charge. She pleaded not guilty during her court appearance and is set to be released on home detention to her aunt's New Jersey residence in the coming days on a $500,000 bond. Uh, This also includes a GPS tracking device via her ankle. In a statement, the Manhattan US attorney, Damian Williams, says, and I quote, as alleged, Mona Montrage was a member of a criminal conspiracy that specifically targeted older Americans through romance scams. These scams can be both financially and emotionally devastating for vulnerable victims. He continues, thanks to the efforts of our law enforcement partners, Montrage was arrested abroad and has been brought to the United States for justice. And I will say this, I am a man of faith, okay? It's a special place in hell when you are willing to rip off individuals who are at the end of their journey. And the little money that they saved, the little money that they saved because they work hard, little retirement money they saved. You wanna steal it from them by playing with their heart, their emotions. Well, there's a penalty for that. And I do hope that at some point um, you're able to transform and trans for out of this kind of activity, but damn, the fake marriage license. Um, We will bring you updates as this develops and I believe there's more to it. All right, it's a damn shame. There are parents, parents who have been charged, all right, with attempted murder for starving their own son, put him up full mass. This is one sick ass story. Georgia parents 
Tyler Shinley, 46, and his wife Krista, 47, were already charged with attempted murder for starving their 10-year-old. Now they're being accused of abusing him in documents. They face a third degree cruelty to children's charge for allowing their four children to see and or hear physical abuse of the child between 2020 and 2023. The other children are now in Georgia's Child Services Department, according to law enforcement. Let me give you some background. The documents state both parents maliciously caused the the emaciated boy excessive physical or mental pain. I'm gonna get into some of the weight issues that led to that conclusion before neighbors found him roaming the streets barefoot. This was Friday in Griffin, Georgia. He was roaming the streets with no shoes. The starving child had been kept locked inside of a bedroom, okay? Locked inside of a bedroom and was left alone in the house for extended periods of time. And on multiple occasions, no access to lights, Food, clothing, adult interaction, assistance, nothing, according to the affidavit. Uh, Let's put the home up. The couple who lives in an upscale community in Griffin, Georgia, um, the home estimated 447,000 also managed to trust Rest Spa together in Peachtree City. That's actually a popular place. Uh, however, they're accused of allowing dental injury and disfiguration. Uh, the boy suffered to go through unattended. The owners of the True Rest Spas have since distanced themselves from the Shenleys, releasing a statement saying they are horrified and shocked by the arrest. And you see clearly their expressed wording. Tyler and Krista Shenley were arrested shortly after the neighbors in an upscale enclave of Griffin, Georgia, found their son wandering. Hungry, confused through the streets before he begged police officers. Hmm. To not take him back home. Authorities quickly determined <clears throat> the child had been intentionally starved and only weighed 36 pounds. You heard that? 36 pounds. The weight of an average four year old. He's 10, he's 10. They've been charged with homicide, attempted malice murder and child cruelty. Uh, they'll be in court on Monday. We will follow the story, give you updates. Jeff Phelps. Yeah, while reading this, I couldn't help but wonder why that child in particular. And while I'm glad it did not include the other children, sure, wonderful. They may not have physical pain, but mentally and emotionally moving forward, this will be damaging and they will need some care just like that other child. So when you show the house and I saw it earlier and realize what those folks do for a living, the parents, um, it just shows what people are struggling with behind the scenes. The veneer of success and, and, and everything else is only a front. Behind the scenes, there was a child suffering and not even the neighbors knew. But luckily that child was strong enough to fight their way out of that door and seek help and justice will be served in this situation. Very well said. All right, we got more on the other side, it's indisputable, stick and stay.
Welcome back, good to be with you. Let me read, uh, I got time for one comment, okay. Um, stuck in, stuck in phone, 1979, I'm in tears. How could anyone do that to a child? Monsters, monsters. All right, hell of a story, a wife accused of killing her husband says, well, the child actually did it. Let's put it with the picture full mass. The legal defense team for Laurie Shaver, the woman accused of killing her husband, Michael Shaver, in 2015 and burying his body in the backyard, now says it was actually that it was actually a child that committed the crime instead. Her attorneys recently filed a motion in Lake County Court saying it received testimony from a minor child who confessed to having committed the murder in this matter. The motion filed by Shaver's defense attorney, Jeffrey Wiggs, seeks a psychological examination of the child. The minor has exculpatory information, meaning information that could basically exonerate the accused. That could prove Shaver's innocence in the case, Wiggs told Fox News Digital. He continues, we're concerned about the child being excluded from trial because of the emotional atmosphere, he said. Adding that the defense is seeking expert insight along with a psychological evaluation just to make sure that the child is candid and is aware of any potential crimes she could be charged with. The minor would, who would have been seven years old at the time of the shooting, but is now 14, has persisted in seeking to testify, the recent motion states. However, the Lake County Prosecutor's Office told WESH in a statement, there is, and I quote, no credible evidence supporting the claims made concerning the involvement of the child, and that the child has not made statements to any law enforcement agency. Laurie Shaver, 40, was released on bond in 2020 after she was accused of shooting her 36-year-old husband, Michael, once in the head, wrapping his body in a sheet and burying him beneath a concrete slab and fire pit outside of the Claremont home. That's according to the affidavit on her arrest. After Michael Shaver's death, Laurie Shaver apparently told Travis Filmer, her boyfriend at the time, and the father of her two youngest children, that Michael was, and I quote, no longer on earth, and that something bad happened on their property. Investigators reported finding blood stains in the track of a sliding glass door that led them to Shaver's dining area to their backyard. Laurie Shaver allegedly posed as her deceased husband on social media. The messages went to family members and used his credit card to make various online purchases, making it seem like he's still alive. Shaver also tried to sell her late husband's guns and vehicle after his death, according to the police. And when you look at this, you know, from just a point of common sense, she obviously engaged in massive cover-up. Likely is the one who pulled the trigger. And I hope this is not a case of a young man trying to save somebody else and willing to confess to something he did not do. Details still developing. Jeff, thoughts? So are we to believe that a seven-year-old lifted a concrete slab while carrying somebody that they murdered in order to conceal what they did? Yeah, that's what the prosecutor is basically saying. Like, listen, there's no credible, you know, anything here to law enforcement. So they're proceeding with the prosecution. All right, very, 
very inspiring story, all right? A paralyzed man was paralyzed by a shooting, okay? He walks, he walks during graduation. Here it is. Let's put it up, full mass. That was a beautiful moment. A student who became paralyzed by a shooting seven years prior walked across the stage of his graduation ceremony at Reynolds Community College. According to reports from WVTR in Richmond, 25 year old Khalil Watson was shot in the neck and shot in the back the week before his senior prom in 2016. Missing both the prom and he missed his high school graduation because he spent months in the hospital from that shooting. As seen on the video, with help from a robotic exoskeleton, from sheltering arms physical therapy, Watson stood up to a standing ovation, walked across the stage and accepted his associate's degree diploma. WVTR reports that Watson will soon attend Virginia Commonwealth University for his bachelor's degree and later his master's degree in social work. Proving it is the spirit inside of you that absolutely defines you. Dear brother, I am proud of you. Thank you for that legacy of leadership you're already creating. Jeff, thoughts on this beautiful story? I look forward to watching that young man walk across the stage two more times to That's get right. his bachelor's and his master's. So good job, go to VCU and dominate. Keep inspiring people like me and Dr. Richie and everybody in the audience because that was wonderful. That was wonderful. All right, dear brother, always a pleasure having you on the program. Tell people they can follow you, check out your great work. Yeah, you can catch me on Rebel HQ every single day. And I also have a YouTube channel called We Gonna Be All Right. There it is. Until next time, my friend. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.